Welcome to the Play Well for Life podcast. Join us as we discuss the lost art of parenting through play and how parents and grandparents can use games to build better relationships with their kids. For more information on how we can help, please visit playwellforlife.com. So welcome to the Play Well for Life podcast. It's my absolute pleasure to have Dr. Jessica Stone with us today. So Dr. Jessica Stone is a PhD and she's a psychologist, international speaker, sought after clinical supervisor and renowned play therapist. She's the co-creator of the Virtual Centre, which I'm really looking forward to hearing more about today, a best-selling author and developer of digital play therapy. So Dr Stone's been featured for her work throughout the virtual world as an innovator, ambassador of play and a stalwart advocate for the use of digital technology in the field of psychology. And we're so excited to have you here today, Jessica. And I'm sure that that little introduction will make all our listeners really clear of why we're so excited to have you. And I'm just really looking forward to what I hope is a great conversation about play, digital therapy and all things sort of psychological and mental health related. So um, just as a way of introduction for our listeners, do you want to just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, your career, how you've ended up where you are now? Certainly. Well, I'm thrilled to be here too. This is very exciting for me. So thank you for having me. I, I, I'm not entirely sure what else to tell you about myself. Uh, I have been in the field of psychology and working with families and children, teens, and a few adults along the way as well uh, for almost 30 years now, which kind of freaks me out to even say. You but, don't have uh, <laughs> to have been doing it 30 years. <laughs> Well, you know, we're on Zoom and lighting helps and, you know, <laughs> some distance. There's plenty, plenty of, of evidence toward that uh, if you saw me close up. <laughs> so I, I really have uh, focused in my career on trying to learn as much as I can, trying to figure out what it is that not only my clients need, but also the bigger picture of things and the field and where things go. I just, I suppose I have a, uh, a mind that just wants to keep going and going and going and deeper and I commonly get on rabbit holes and they're I'm ordering books like recently I just ordered a book from the 1800s just trying to look nice. at some of the historical things so uh, I, I guess all of that comes together through my personality and and my interest to have led me to where I am today in trying to see how all of these things that we have going on in our our lives come together and part of that is all this digital world that we're in these days and young people who are are growing up now they don't know their life to be any different they're digital natives when we say to them why would we use these things play with these things include them in our professional world uh, their answer is why wouldn't you right so to me, that's our responsibility to try to figure out how all that fits together. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point because it's that sort of barrier of understanding, isn't it, between the generation that has had to learn to adopt and become familiar with technology versus the current younger generation, as you say, are digital natives. And, and I think that that gap between experience underpins a lot of the discourse about the challenges or problems with technology um i don't know if you yeah your views on that oh well i i'm not sure we would ever have enough time to have that complete conversation <laughs> but uh 
I, I just recently published a book came it released in July through Rutledge called Digital Play Therapy. And a big portion of what I wrote about in there um, had to do with techno panic and research and how to understand and critically evaluate research so that when you're reading it, we don't have confirmation bias of, oh, that's my belief system and that headline or that statement fits in with it so it must be true that we really need to look at things and and be able to evaluate because one of the big concerns i have when we're talking about the um, potential negatives and and i'm not saying that everything about everything digital digital is fantastic that is not what i'm saying you know we definitely need to evaluate and critically think through all of this, but we can't just throw out the baby with the bathwater to bring back a really old uh, statement. So for me, it's, it's a concern of if we are so focused as a world, as a, as a world society on the negatives in these arenas, we are really potentially missing actual things that we should be paying attention to because it's it becomes so polarized and it, it really lands somewhere in the middle of okay here here are the pros here are the cons here are what we have to look out for this can inform development and treatment and and everything along the way and um, I see I'm seeing some shifts now because interestingly enough certainly don't wish this pandemic that we're in the middle of um, on anybody anywhere but there are going to be some interesting things that come out of it certainly in the psychology world prior to this I've been talking about using digital tools for 10 years and uh, had a lot of people look at me like I had three heads and I was just absolutely crazy like why would you include these things and had people literally say to me you would never be able to have a connection with somebody over something that was digital and now that we've been forced into using so many of these, I mean, right now we're in different countries, right? So, so this is fantastic that we can even do this today. But as far as treatment goes, a lot, a lot of telehealth going on, medical field um, and in the mental health field. And there are posts all over the place on social media saying, I cannot believe I have such a connection with my client over this telehealth platform. I can't believe that was possible. And that fascinates me because just even a year ago, people would have still scoffed at that. Mm. So I think, I think one of the things we're going to come out of this with, besides really some truly innovative, amazing ways to connect people uh, to mental health services, because all over the world, access to mental health services has been an issue. And, in so many places it's at a crisis level that we we have not been able to to treat mental health concerns all over the world so now i think that's going to shift um, in in amazing ways and that we're also seeing that the whole entire world at least so far has not fallen apart with all this digital tool use <laughs> and what does that that's really cool. mean people have quite enjoyed it <laughs> right exactly and and even in the mental health world, we're hearing a lot of not just I can connect, but also, wow, there really is some value, and especially to people who work with children, there's some value in seeing the, the cat that they've been telling you so much about, their living environment, 
the ways their families uh, protect or violate their personal boundaries regarding having this this private space to have a session in their room like uh, does the family just walk in and walk out and doesn't doesn't seem to um, adhere to those boundaries that have been asked for or do they so there's lots of really valuable information and plus the fact like i for my, i can speak for myself and my clients commonly in the past my client's parents would have to leave work go pick up their child bring their child to my office have the session bring the child back to school, go back to work. The child's missing hours of school. Mm -hmm. the, the parent is missing hours of work. Well, now I have clients who are being seen from their school. They go into a private space, they meet with me for 45 minutes, and then they go back to their class. Parent doesn't miss any work. Child misses a drastically smaller amount of school. So I, I'm hoping that we're gonna just see some really great things come out of this. Mm -hmm. And when, do you notice a difference when you're doing a therapy session with a child that's more situated in their day-to-day -day context, whether that's at home or, or at school, rather than in a sort of objective context of your office? Well, I definitely think there are differences. And there are pros and cons to both. I think there is value to coming to a separate space we, can, we, we refer to the room as a container often, that this is, even if I move something, and I'm sure mental health people who are listening to this can relate that if I move a plant in the room that they're just so used to, it can jar some clients. They can become really uncomfortable, like, whoa, something's different. Now it doesn't feel as safe and things like that. So mm -hmm. the container of the office does provide this other experience and i think there's value to that so um i think there's pros and cons to the to the other space of their home or their school that's very familiar to them i think there's pros to that too that one of course as i said they're not missing all that time from school or work or things like that but but also because that may be a very comfortable space for them Mm. Being in their room might give them the uh, ability to speak about some things they wouldn't have if they were in your office and vice versa. So I, I think that one of the things that's probably going to come out of this is some hybrid work. Mm. Like a couple of sessions are in the office, a couple of sessions are in the home. It's going to, to have a little bit of mix and match because, and for some people, they're going to want to be, they're just going to want to stay telehealth. For people who are neurodiverse, often this is this is beautiful for them. <laughs> they they don't have to engage in the same way uh, in 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 attend to as many social cues and have that intensity of that person right with them. Some distance and space can be helpful. So it's going to be again really interesting to see where a lot of this lands and and the research that comes out of it. Mm. It's really interesting, and it sounds like it offers the potential actually now sort of the the fixed traditional model has had to flex it it sounds like Absolutely. it offers the potential for, for for more thought to sort of flexibility to meet an an individual or a client's needs rather than everyone fitting into the same framework and i think you know promoting choice is always positive 
Um, yeah, so well, interesting. If somebody feels that. like they, if somebody feels like they, when we say choice, that can mean a lot of things and a lot of very important things. And I think in this arena, something I want to point out amongst a, a lot of other points we could make is that when people make that choice, when they determine what that, that um, place of comfort is for them, it, it, it lends to another level of investment, personal huh. investment and control in the situation that, that they have more say in that, that they have more um, ability to contribute to their care. And we know that in the medical world, mm. there's been lots of talk for decades about patients being more involved in their own medical care. And I think this is one way that we can uh, bring this into the psychology and mental health world. Mm. Well, and I think also for, for my, one of my thoughts is that children and young people don't have very much control, actually. You know, a lot mm -hmm. of their lives are dictated to by other people and external frameworks and structures and i think i think having pockets of choice and autonomy can be really important particularly if if looking mm -hmm. at opening up a healing or a growth process or or something like that um Absolutely. so coming back to sort of digital mm -hmm. approaches and play in particular are you finding that it needs to be rethought and different when it's done digitally or are you finding that the same things that work in a physical world work really well in a digital world so my brain goes in two main different directions with that fundamentally what i really believe through my own experience with my clients and also through research and writing is that digital tools in therapy really can be looked at as if we want to use this quote just another tool mm. because the idea is that we are using the fundamental tenets of whatever our theoretical foundation is whatever our belief system is about how change and growth happens with a mm. client we're we're using those same fundamentals and happen to be using a digital tool. Just like in play therapy, we might happen to be using Santray, or we might happen to be using puppets or whatever it is that we are, are working with the client to be able to help them express what it is that they need to, to um, share, to work through, to intervene, whatever it is that we're doing with them. And even with an adult client, it's, it's just another tool to enter their world, to connect with what's important to them. Really, it's, a, it's about culture. Culture, the definition of culture has been expanded over the, the years. And it talked, it talked a lot about not only uh, race and religion and, and things like that, but also interest and groups that they identify with and music and are all kinds of things can go into somebody's culture and their own definition and identification of that culture. And for us as mental health workers to enter into that world and respect 
their culture, often at this point, also includes interest in digital tools, interest mm -hmm. in video games, interest in VR, interest in app, interest in all those things. What does that mean to them? So if we are talking with somebody about their other kinds of interests, but we're excluding these kinds, what is that all about? Like that just seems so counterintuitive to what we've all learned about working with people. Conversely, if, if we look at it this way, so I'm gonna go to a little bit of an extreme example here just to make a point. But if somebody came in and said, I identify this way in, with my sexuality, mm -hmm. whatever it is, and that was not something that was congruent or in the therapist's belief system or something like that, then the therapist has some work to do for sure. <laughs> What's that about, right? But also that it might be appropriate to refer that person out because there's a, an issue there that the therapist can't work with that client potentially in the places they need to because they have this real incongruence, whatever that boils down to. Well, to me, that is very similar to if somebody comes in and their world is wrapped around something like a particular video game, mm -hmm. and they spend a lot of time, they have connections through that, they're on teams, they're playing with people, whatever it is. And, but we say, oh no, but we're not gonna talk about that. Oh, well, that's not important. Isn't that very similar? Like, aren't we, aren't we excluding a whole portion of who they are and what is a big part of their life? And to me, that is a really big problem. So even we can, we can talk about like all the pros and cons and whatever, but when we boil it down and we're in the room with that person, then I think we need to really uh, honor that culture of what they're bringing in and what's important to them. The other part of the conversation is, um, is, that I think a lot of times therapists are uncomfortable with the, the, the digital tools and a lot of times it's because they don't have their own exposure to it. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that they don't quite understand. So on one hand, we can say it's just another tool. And on the other hand, it feels very much like an other. And to me, that is um, predominantly a therapist-directed uh, area in that we need as a as a whole to learn about this area of our clients lives that mm -hmm. we need to enter into that even if it's not our thing like <laughs> as funny as it sounds with all I talked about and and developed and all of that I'm not a particularly digitally directed person I'm not the one who would be standing in line wanting the newest phone or the new whatever uh, I still keep an old school calendar, okay? Um, <laughs> I have digital ones, but this one, I just like it. I like the paper. I like to look, you know. So it, it's not that I am so much in this direction that it's a big part of my own life. I, as I've already admitted, I'm old. And so I certainly did not grow up with all of this stuff. But I see the value, one, in and of itself, even without my client's involvement, and two, I see the importance of entering their world. So be, because of those two things, I have purposefully educated myself and can, will continue to do so because it's rapidly changing. Mm. I love that. I love that idea of, you know, it's about 
respecting someone's culture identity preferences and then being interested and curious from that place of respect to find out to reach understanding and to go and educate oneself um and yeah it really sounds like well actually it doesn't sound like i guess a question is wh whose responsibility is it to educate around digital understanding is it each individual therapist or actually do you think there's a responsibility of professional bodies and training programs to be introducing that i would say it's both and and from what i understand certainly my understanding is limited but from what i understand about the system that you all have in the uk mm. is i actually think it's it's a bit better in some ways because as I understand it again, you all require continued supervision. Mm. And so post licensure, you're licensed, you know, and, and you, you're going on and you're doing your practice working wherever you're working, but you still have to have supervision. And here in the United States, I think um, that can be an issue because we don't require that. Once you're licensed, you don't have to be supervised. You can consult and you can seek out supervision, but it's not required. Mm. So it, it, it right now, so I've just recently started um, putting out this year, putting out a lot of consultation groups and, and things like that. And you would think, I would think that they would be jam packed and I would be like drowning in people who want to learn more because there are so many people who are saying, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do this. I don't, I don't know how to play this game with this person or talk then have a conversation. I don't even know how to find out the information. Mm -hmm. and so you would think they would be really seeking that out. But instead what I'm seeing is a lot of people asking very important questions on Facebook. And, <laughs> and my, my, my answer, what I want to cut and paste and, and I'm not trying to be negative about people. I mean, the good news is they're seeking out information. They're trying, they're asking the questions. They're realizing and recognizing that, that they have some lack of information and experience in an arena and they're seeking it out. So that I commend people for. But what I always say to myself is if you were in court and you had to defend whatever your decision was, do you really think that sitting on the stand and saying, well, somebody answered me in Facebook and so that's what I went with? <laughs> Probably not. I love that way of framing it because it just makes it really, really clear. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that could be Twitter or Instagram. I mean, that could be any of them. You know, I'm just using that that one social media outlet as a as a an example. But really, here in the U.S., I think whatever you're doing something new, whatever it is, whether you're licensed or not, that seeking out supervision. Mm -hmm. So, that's one realm of it. But yes, educational institutions, which have traditionally been very slow to change, yeah. very slow to adopt new anything. Um, and there's a bunch of reasons for that, but that needs to swiftly have some reboot as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then all along. And so people taking personal individual responsibility for educating themselves, seeking out supervision and consultation and education. And then also from, so that's from the top down and the bottom up of the educators bringing the new therapists into mm. the field. Cause yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, I'm hearing similar things that, you know, parents are finding that their children are really into games 
they don't understand it how do they support it and and from sort of schools mm -hmm. there's a lot of resistance there's a lot of not not all but a lot you know because there's still this very negative narrative around games in particular and also digital and, and screens more generally um and i also think you know it's a responsibility of individual adults to look at their own digital practices understand how what that might model or pass yes. demonstrate oh, show, and why is it one I, version for young people and something else for adults absolutely absolutely there was a, a viral picture that went around on social media i don't know a couple of years ago that was i and you've probably seen it a bunch of teenagers <laughs> a bunch of teenagers staring at their phones when they were in a museum mm. and the narrative all over the place about that was oh my gosh here this whole generation that isn't even paying attention to the beauty and the history around them they're all staring at their phones and i looked at that and i said something is not right about this for me like yes you would have some outliers who might have attitude and they're looking at your at their phones or whatever but generally in a group of humans you have that whole normal bell curve happening right and about 68 percent of the people would be going along with what they're supposed to be doing mm. at least somewhere okay so if this is a school group that's in in a museum all of them would not be on their phones it just doesn't make sense so i again as i told you earlier went down the rabbit hole and i did a bunch of research on it and when you uncovered it that wasn't it at all. It was a group of students who were in the museum and they had assignments and things they had to read and do on their phones. That's why they were all on their phones because they had been instructed to do so. But the narrative in the world was, oh, look at these awful teenagers and what are we doing? And you know, it was, it was, it's interesting to me as a society that that is our response. Again, back to that confirmation bias conversation. It's also interesting to me as a society that it really didn't take me long to find what that actually was. Mm. Why don't more people do that? But maybe, maybe there's a lot of people who do that, but they're not talking about it. Like I certainly didn't make some huge stink on social media. I answered some people and said, actually, here's the link to what was actually happening. And I did respond to some people, but obviously I'm not going to spend all day and night responding all over the world to all, all people talking about it, or I couldn't even find them all. But it's, it's interesting, well, the approaches that we take. I think, you know, and I think, I think I, I, I spend time wondering, you know, is it just because it's new technology and when you look back historically, all new technology has a yeah. negative response and people are worried, or is there something different here? Is it about that? you know, that divide between being digitally native versus not digitally native, or is it about, you know, the social context we find ourselves in, which may or may not be driven by social media, you know, of this very polarized world where actually mm -hmm. things are either all bad or not talked about. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and the fact that we seem to have lost socially and globally possibly that sense of nuance where actually two sides to a story most things are neither good nor bad it's how you apply them and and those sort of gray areas and and I, and I spend a lot of time wondering which of those it may be or all of them plus probably a load of other reasons right. um i i think that is the truest statement what you just said i think it's it's a it's 
all of the above, it's, it's a whole bunch of other things that maybe we're not aware of, which is what I was saying earlier, is the concern about going in these techno panic directions because we're missing out on some of the things that we should probably be paying a lot of attention to. The reality is it's not going away. Yeah, exactly. If, if most of us think of the idea of not having our phones, like I have noticed in my life that there has been very few things ever in my entire existence that I remember on a daily basis to have with me. Mm. And my phone is one of them. That means that the, the, what is included in my phone, and certainly it has to do with my business, I need to be responsible to my clients, all that kind of stuff. But what is in my phone has enough value to me that even as I'm running out the door, I'm patting my pocket to make sure I have it. Mm. That means that it is embedded in my minute by minute life mm. in, a, in some ways, especially during my waking hours you know, not, not obviously the rest of, rest of my day, but, but that means that I, I can't be alone in that, certainly. And I mean, I know I've heard other people panic. Oh my gosh, I left my phone at work today and now they don't have access to all the things that it includes. So, or, or if our computers go down, a, a huge panic, you know, especially right now, we wouldn't be able to do these meetings and whatnot. But, but what that means is that it's so embedded in our day-to-day -day lives as, a, as a, a global society, that it's not like a year from now, everyone's going to say, oh, let, we're just going to, everybody's just going to give it up and we're not going to do it anymore. That's not going to happen. It's only going to advance. And some of those are going to be positive And some of the things that we're going to have to look at as a society to decide whether or not these are positive or negative things. But the idea of kind of this now, I want to say old school, it's not really because it hasn't been around that long, but this idea of, oh, things are bad and we just need to put it to the side and we need to say it's bad. One, is that even an accurate statement? Two, it's not going to help us because now we're just like turning a blind eye to something that's still going to be here. And it's going to become more and more and more matriculated into everybody's life. And how do we want to manage that? How do we want to control that narrative as a society? In, in the UK, you have some amazing work being done by Drs. Amy Orban and Dr. Um, Andrew Shabilsky uh, through the Oxford Internet Institute. And I, I mean, just great work. And they're not doing uh, the original research to say, oh, this is what we have found. They're looking at existing research. And there was this really great article, and, and I'll, if you don't already know it and have it, I'm happy to send you the link, and then you can provide it for people who are listening. But the, there's a, a recent one that they put out that, that showed that um, things like eating potatoes, mm. if you read this article, eating potatoes actually is correlated, correlated more negatively than, um, than digital tool use. Okay. The fact that we, both of us right now, are wearing glasses is correlated negatively. So if, we, if we're just looking at one thing and we have a narrow view and we're, and we're skewed to be looking for negative things about one thing and we're not comparing them to others and we're not putting it in a, in a balanced view, then what are we going to find? We're going to find the one thing. Um, the old adage here in the U.S. anyway is if you go to a surgeon, guess what? You're most likely going to have surgery. <laughs> yes. Well, and it's, 
and I think you know and you will be able to fill in the proper you know therapeutic framework but I believe like no therapeutic approach has ever found that denying something <laughs> and turning <laughs> away from it has been a helpful constructive approach <laughs> you know I, I think kind of looking at things as you're saying sort of rationally evaluating them and and taking responsibility for how do I how do I use this tool to work for me and how do I take responsibility for you know, making my own decisions about how not to use it in the areas that it doesn't work for me. Because I hear a lot about this kind of real narrative about people being slaves to their technology. And, and I often think, actually, it's, it is down to you to decide how you use it. Yes, you're exactly. Not, you're not and... a slave to it. Yes, there are powerful mechanisms. Yes, yes there are mechanics built into it and, and all sorts of things in the design that are, you know, covert or overtly there to specifically trigger your reward mechanisms and all of those sorts of things i'm not denying any of that but actually you know people are still capable of making decisions around that and I, and I think it's more important to have those discussions and promote education so that people can make informed choices for themselves about it and we can look at say like the people talk about the endorphin rush that can happen when you're playing a game and how that can be addictive and all these kinds of things well there's endorphin rushes when you're smelling a beautiful flower mm. There's endorphin rushes when you're eating foods. There, there's endorphin rushes when, rushes when you're having sex. Like there's, I mean, so we, we need to put them side by side with the other things and say, okay, where does it really fit in the scope of being a human? And what does that mean? Mm. That's the kind of stuff we should be looking at. Yeah. Well, and I think there's also, you know, going back to your point about, you know, needing your phone, I think there's something really interesting around in such a short space of time, this thing that didn't even exist has become mm -hmm. an essential need in most people's day to day lives. And that's, mm -hmm. that's quite unique. And therefore, I think certainly warrants lots of discussion. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Which, of course, we don't have time for today. <laughs> so tell me about how you, you know, tell me more about your, your decision to go on that digital journey. So sort of mm -hmm. going from, you know, non-digital to translating your practice into digital tools, such so, as Andre. To try to answer that succinctly, uh, I think it's two main things. One is that I was taught in grad school by a, a, a professor who would really speak to us a lot about speaking your client's language, whatever that language is. And a lot of times he was talking about cadence and vernacular, but to me, I really adopted that. And I thought, okay, so what does it mean to speak someone's language? Well, that means that you're really incorporating the important components of life and their view and, and all of that into the work that you're doing. It's not just cadence and, and vernacular. It's their interest, their culture, the things that we've already mm -hmm. been talking about. And so what does that mean when you really enter into that with somebody? They feel heard and understood and accepted. And isn't that really what all of us want as human beings fundamentally anyway that's what we want from our partners our friends our family that's what we we want to be around our tribe and our tribe are people who hear us see us understand us and accept us and so 
that, that was the, a, a big portion of it. So I would teach classes years and years ago when Pokemon was brand new and I would bring up Pokemon because all the kids were bringing in their Pokemon cards and talking about all these characters and their evolutions and their strengths and weaknesses and all this stuff. And I would bring up the cards and I'd hold one up in front of the class I was teaching and there would be this collective moan of, oh, if I have to hear about Pokemon more, one more time. And for me, it was like, no, let's, we have to switch that narrative in our own heads to say, why is this important to our clients? What interest is this meeting? What need is this meeting? What does it mean to them? What do they identify with? Mm -hmm. And that's before the push of digital stuff. So it's just been kind of the way this one professor really set my brain on this direction and how important it is. Then you combine with, I have four children and my older children, uh, I fought getting them getting a, an Xbox or PlayStation or whatever at the time. Like I thought we don't really need that and whatever. And, and then I fought getting a cell phone when they were brand new. And I thought, I don't need to be that connected to anybody. Why do I need a cell phone? And then there was a day where I was supposed to do some testing and I was doing it through another psychologist. And, uh, and so I had to go to her office on a Saturday morning, bright and early and my car broke down on the way. Now this is an office that was only going to be open because I was going to open it. Okay. So if you imagine this family woke up, prepared their child, drove to the office, locked building, no understanding what was happening. Mm -hmm. All they knew was that I didn't show up. I had absolutely no way to get a hold of them or anybody to the building to tell them because I was the one opening it. I was gonna be the only one there that day. And I sat there on the side of the road thinking, I really need to get a cell phone. This was a problem. This was not okay. The effect, my stress, my whatever, and on top of it, their confusion, what that child went through, the, should everybody bounce back from that pretty well? Certainly. Is it understandable once I explain it? Absolutely. But in the meantime, what effect did all of that have on the testing process, on the, mm -hmm. on the rapport between us, on all of those things? And that report is going to affect this child's life. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just a tiny little example that dawned on me, oh my goodness. Then I started to, uh, my, my kids overtook my, my whatever, my refusal, <laughs> whatever you want to say. They won, maybe. <laughs> yeah, they, they did. Um, and because of a family member sent them a, a console for Christmas, not knowing what was in the box, they open it up and there it is. And I'm not going to take it away from them after that. So here we had these things and they were playing certain games on their computers as well by this point. And one of those games is called RuneScape. It's still mm -hmm. around today. Uh, very long story short, I decided if they're interested in this, I want to understand more. So I did what we now turn as co-play. Mm -hmm. And there's good research out there on co-play and the importance of it. There's even intergenerational research on co-play and the importance of it. So I think that's a big, huge direction to go in. And I decided that I'd learn more and I played and I understood things. I could have conversations with my kids that I couldn't have before that translated into my work. Then we fast forward again because of time and the virtual fan trade that you had asked me about. Um, so basically, tsunami hit in Japan in 2011. A good friend and colleague reached out on Facebook to people and said, we need materials. 
I, I gathered a bunch and sent them and all that good stuff. And then I uh, was saying to my husband, how are they going to do sand tray? And for those of you who don't know, sand tray is it's a, it's a projective expressive technique. And basically you're, you're taking items, little miniature items, and you're putting them into a tray that has sand in it, moving the sand around, moving the items around, and you're creating a world. So it's a way of, of projecting your inner experience and emotions onto something else, just like artwork can be. Those of you who have heard of the Rorschach inkblots, that's a projective technique. It's really an inkblot, but we're taking our inner stuff and we're putting it onto it, we're projecting it onto it to then have some sort of understanding. So. Um, how are they going to do that in this situation, this trauma crisis situation? And I saw that uh, I had gotten an iPad for Mother's Day and I saw it sitting on the counter and I said, oh my goodness, it should be on an iPad. It should be portable. It should be all of these things. And then you start thinking about people who can't access the tray. They, they have motor difficulties. They're in a wheelchair. They use crutches, whatever it is. Mm. Um, and People who have allergies, contact allergies, they can't be touching the sand. I mean, we can all talk about how you might clean sand, but the reality is you're not going to clean every nook and cranny of the sand. You're not going to clean every nook and cranny of the miniatures. Like, that's not realistic. And that's pre-COVID. We're not even talking about what we're in the middle of right now. And so it just kind of exploded. What about hospitals? What about people? Like, we have a study going on right now at the University of Alabama which is both medical distraction of devices, but also gathering psychosocial information because this is uh, the virtual sand tray is a therapeutic tool, not quote, just a game. So, uh, you know, there are additional things that we can glean from it in a, in a more therapeutic way because it is built specifically to be a therapeutic tool. Mm. And pediatric burn patients aren't going they are very susceptible to infection they can't bring in sand and a bunch of miniatures into somebody in a pediatric burn patient ward so that that really exploded into lots of development lots of consultation beta testing with high profile sand tray therapists to get a, a, the importance of one accessibility and two to incorporate the fundamental tenets of this psychological tool that has been around since the 1930s. Margaret Lowenfeld, Dr. Lowenfeld came up with this idea in the 1930s. You all there have the Lowenfeld Trust in the, in the UK with her descendants and, and um, continuing her work and furthering all of that. So this tool has been around a long time and we took it and put it on a portable, cleanable, expandable um, method that also speaks to our client's language, which is this digital native inclusion mm -hmm. of these tools in their lives. And they have quite a familiarity, a comfort, and an understanding of it, which is steps ahead when your client already has those components, then you're already steps ahead because there's not this huge learning curve and whatnot. So mm -hmm. that's where we are, you know, in, in, since COVID, we have expanded it. We have a remote feature now so that you can connect with a client from afar, I've connected people as far as Australia uh, so far and, and been able to witness them doing things on their end, creating their tray on their end with their own hands. And because um, we have specifically have it on a tablet. We also have it uh, uh, developed for VR, for virtual reality. And that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> Again, we won't have time for today. But, no, but I'm definitely going to bring you back for that one. <laughs> <laughs> 
because so on the tablet though there's a kinesthetic experience of creating the tray with your hands of digging down in the sand of being able to build it up place your models make them bigger and smaller do all these things with your hands and that is why we have this specifically chosen tablet so that you have mm -hmm. that touch screen and you can create it um, and and trying to find that balance between accessibility of people being able to use it and also staying true and honoring the fundamentals. And I guess what I'm really hearing is in your experience, actually considering and, and translating things to digital actually opens up accessibility options rather than limiting them, which I think is something, you, you know, that's often not talked more about. And mm -hmm, but I know I quite often hear people, there's an assumption that if it's translated to a digital format, it somehow is fundamentally different and, and therefore needs its own evidence base. Have you found differences in effectiveness or, 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 any, or on any parameters with the, the virtual sound tray versus a non-virtual? So I think a lot of that's going to depend on the therapist, to be honest, because mm -hmm. our clients are looking to us for our comfort, for our understanding of things. Uh, if, we, if we feel comfortable and competent in these tools, whatever it is, then that's going to to exude out of us, if you will, and our clients are going to pick up on that. And, and when we are around people, that's, that's why for the whole time of being a human being or history of humans, people would lean towards certain things, even if they didn't have a whole lot of basis to them, because people, the person talking about it was charismatic or, or mm -hmm. believable or, or something like that. So, so I'm not saying, saying that this is exactly the same, but I am saying there's a component in us as humans that we do get drawn to that. So if the therapist has a comfort level, then, then that's the first piece. The second piece is for me, and I know there are lots of people who are listening who would have different opinions and, and there's room for us all at the table. But for me, because I do have a comfort in this, because my focus is entering their world and understanding it, and I have sought out this information and experience in it, then that turn, in turn has my client feeling more open to, to being able to engage in those experiences. So the ones who use, even in in-person face-to-face sessions prior to COVID, right now I'm 100% telehealth, but even in then, there were clients who, who really took that that comfort level that we both had mm -hmm. and ran with it and i think i learned more and had more uh powerful experiences with them being able to do things in the virtual sand tray because there's multi-level depictions of of their world there's different ways to translate the mood there's so we have over 7,000 3D models that can be placed in this sand tray. I don't have over 7,000 3D models in my traditional <laughs> setup. Definitely not. And I've been collecting. I've always been told over, over the years that you um, can tell a, a, a therapist, play therapist in particular, how long they've been in, in the, the field because of how big their collection is because they're continually adding to it. <laughs> And I still don't have over 7,000. So there's, there are ways to use it that expand upon the original. 
And, and then I have some clients that that is just not their thing, that they like to plunge their hands in the sand. And so I have both available. And I even have clients who will do a traditional and a virtual in the same session when I'm in person session. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it, the other piece of it is being able to have different possibilities and options for our clients so that they can use what speaks to them. Because frankly, it's not about us. Yeah. As the therapist, not about us, it's about them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's that sort of being able to integrate, to be flexible and therefore continuously expanding the ways in which you place your client at the center of the practice. Um, yes. So it was really nice hearing your experiences as a mother, as well as a therapist what advice do you have for parents who are currently not understanding their kids playing video games, currently not knowing how to, how to move towards understanding, respect and all of those things? What would you be your advice on how they can start to bridge that gap and, and, and come to that understanding of their children's world? Right. So I think the co-play is a big piece of it. Play the games, know the games your kids are playing, play them with them. We may not have a huge interest in whatever that game is. Some people might not have a huge interest in having a tea party, but we mm -hmm. have a tea party with our child because our child has interest in that. It, it's exciting and fun to them and we enter into that because it's important to them. <laughs> this, is, this is the same thing. Mm -hmm. This is entering into what is important to them, one. Two, Balance is absolutely critical. We don't want anybody to be out of balance in what they're doing. We know from the medical field to the psychological field, from sociology, from everywhere, that being out of balance as a human is not a good thing. As an earth, it's not a good thing. And it's all over the place. Balance is so important. So if we're thinking about balance, if we have a, a, a person who is so into reading that they're just in their book all the time, 24 seven, you can't get them to look up, engage, eat, whatever it is, they're always in the book. Well, we don't look at the book and say, well, books must be bad. We say, what is bringing this situation to the place where it is? And how do we bring that into more balance? What does this book mean to them? The reading, all that kind of stuff. So, so I think, for parents focusing on how do we, what does balance mean? Mm. What does it mean within the, the family values that we have? How do we incorporate not only as a parent, our own ideals and views and, and all of that fundamentals with what our child's interests and views and, and fundamentals are? How do we bring together as a family as a whole? How do we look at these dynamics that are happening in our family that might be leading to the youth? We, we hear all the time as therapists the, the situation where the kid just won't get off the computer, just won't do what they're supposed to do. They just want to play the game. And on one hand, yes, the games are fun and we can all, every single one of us can get sucked down a rabbit hole of, oh my goodness, I just spent X amount of time on my computer when I didn't mean to because I was looking at this and then that and then this and that and this. And we may not be playing games or we might be playing games, but all of a sudden time went by. So it's not 
too far from that to say that our children might be experiencing something very similar. Mm -hmm. So how do we also teach them time management? How do we look at how our family is set up? Instead of going and pulling the plug on whatever they're doing, if you're co-playing, you're understanding the game. And now you can say, okay, so I know you're going to start this quest, and that usually takes about 15 minutes. So don't start another one because we need to blah, blah, blah. We need mm. to eat dinner. We need to go somewhere. We need to whatever. So if you don't understand the game, how are you supposed to know that, to mm. even say that to them? So I think it's understanding. It's having our own level of comfort with it, entering their world just like we do as therapists, you know, different reasons and different um, goals and whatnot but some of them are very similar and and evaluating our own behavior like you were saying earlier you know a lot of adults staring at their phones I was doing a this is very quick I was doing a um, a, a meeting at the children's hospital in Boston and I'm sitting outside waiting for my uber to come pick me up when it was done and next to me was this family and both of the parents were on their phones and these little kids three of them, all under five, were basically running amok because the parents are so into their phones that the baby's in the stroller and the second one is beating up the baby and nobody is even paying attention. And the third one, who is a bigger and probably about four years old, is just running all over the place. And both of the parents mm. staring at their phones. So what does that mean? Maybe we need to really look at that and the effect on, and I know people are, I'm not saying people aren't because I've read articles and whatnot, um, but maybe we really need to look at some other components of this, which brings us back to where we started, which is really, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's really understand it's not going away. Here we all are. It's important for us as therapists, mental health people, and as humans in general to, to look at this with some different eyes and some different views to see how do we do best in guiding where we're going with all of this? Yeah. Yes. And, and, and having sensible conversations about it mm -hmm. you know, with openness. So, so where do you think is best if you were guiding it where kind of games, <laughs> technology, mental health, young people are going, where would you guide it? Oh, that's a big question. And I, I would first want a whole lot more information. Um, but for where I think it's going, as I think that therapists, if we're talking, let's just talk about mental health for just a moment first. And so I think therapists coming up are also digital natives. And I think it's going to be very natural for all of these things to be, again, back to that original question I said, where the older generation is saying, why would we include these things? The newer generation is going to say, why aren't we? Mm. Why wouldn't we? So I think it's going to be very natural. I think it, there's going to be a, a, a big shift that's coming with these people who are coming up. Um, and then I think that things like virtual reality is going to be amazingly powerful in mental health. It already is. I'm using it. I have a couple of headsets right behind me. I have a, a HTC Vive whole setup for my clients and I have the Quest. I'm doing some of my sessions remotely in VR and meeting my clients in VR. And it's, it's our whole body experience, right? Because we're both seeing each other, we're hearing each other, we're moving around, we're playing things together, we're going through the motions, just because we're not physically in the same room. That's amazingly powerful. Uh, Dr. Les Posen is doing some amazing things in Australia where he used to actually take people up in planes 
for exposure therapy, people who are afraid of flying, you would take them up in planes. I mean, that's really expensive. You have to have a plane. You have to have, yeah, I mean, <laughs> crazy, super expensive. And now we can put our headsets on and, and have our entire body feel like we are in a plane. We are at a height. So lots of history of mental health treatment saying, imagine if. Well, what does this world look like to you? Can you describe it? Well, as a therapist, my client's describing it to me. I may not be picturing it the way that they intend it. Mm. Really, there's a lot lost, right, in between there. But if we're both in a world and we're both in a headset and we can both see what that client has created or what they're experiencing or what they're trying to describe to me, whoa, it's a whole nother experience. In this virtual stand trade VR, now, not only are you creating this world and, and, and expressing and having that projective experience, but now you can interact with it. Mm. Now you can walk around in that world. You can look up in the, in the developing world, it's called God mode. So you can be up above and looking down, or you can be down in it and actually engaged with this environment that you've created. That's a whole nother experience. So to me, Virtual reality, mixed reality, um, augmented reality, they, it all goes under the, t the heading XR for people who are going to look it up. Uh, that is, is really, really powerful. And, and uh, Dr. Walter Greenleaf, who is a pioneer and been working in this field for uh, almost four decades, just amazing the work he has done. He includes tablets in that XR experience. So, okay. um, yeah. So, it, I, I think we don't even know what we don't know. And that's a huge direction to go in. As far as society, um, I think once we have this mind shift, and maybe some of this result of this pandemic is going to do that, but a mind shift that we're not going to just exclude anything to do with the screen because it's quote unquote bad. And we're going to look at that differently now given our experiences. And a lot of people are feeling out of balance right now. So Yes, but now we're back to the balance conversation, right? So we definitely want to come back more into some balance. But ostracizing screen stuff because it's called bad really has a different flavor now that we're all basically living on them. And, and, and as we said earlier, you know, everything, the world isn't falling apart um, on all sorts of levels because of it. Out of balance, yes, potentially in a lot of situations. But um, perhaps we're going to start noticing that there's value where we hadn't seen it before. And I think that's going to then open the doors into a lot of different possibilities. Yeah. It sounds, it, and hearing your version, it sounds exciting, you know, and, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's about actually the tools really are value neutral. So let's define the value of them. Let's, mm -hmm. let's, you know, shape what that looks like. Um, and and thank you for what you said about VR. As you know, I'm a big AR proponent with our AR board game, and uh, we endlessly and and I I've been quite skeptical about VR. I personally don't like it as an experience when I've tried different ones, and you've just completely sold me on why it's useful in terms of that sense of embodiment and moving therapy out of just a focus on thoughts and the mind and into that embodied sense. Um, so yeah, Mike, we have an ongoing conversation in our team about uh, the AR versus um, VR debate. And one of my artists has been trying to sell VR to me. So you've just finished that. So I'll, I can tell him now that I'm converted. 
<laughs> well, I'd be very interested in the future to hear what you guys come up with because the, <laughs> the work that you've been doing is amazing. So now, now that now that you and and that developer can put your heads together, I think something amazing is going to come out of that one. Well, and maybe a collaboration with you, I think. So thank you. Um, and and I I feel like there's so many other things we could have. Spoken yes, about so many so many points where I wanted to take it down a tangent and particularly the VR so I really hope you will agree to come on again um, in the not too distant future to go down some of those rabbit holes I'm a rabbit hole person as well so maybe we can <laughs> go further down some of those rabbit holes and uh, certainly go down the sort of immersive and XR discussion because that would be fantastic oh I would love to do that we should definitely set that up Awesome. So is there anything else you want to say that, you know, anything out of this discussion you feel like it's really take home nuggets for our listeners? Oh, take home nuggets. Well, hopefully there are a whole bunch of them in, in what we've talked about today. And, and I think that the biggest thing is for us to constantly remind ourselves, myself included, I gave you the example of the cell phone, gave you the example of not wanting my kids to have consoles, things like that. So uh, I'm talking about for myself as well. And that will continue, I hope, throughout the rest of my life that I will continue to challenge myself to say, what about this is about me? What is it about the other person and what is it about us together? So if we did three circles, we'd have a circle on the left, a circle on the right, and then a circle in the center that is joining both of those and trying to really evaluate why we have the views we have, what they really mean for ourselves, for our families, for our clients, for whoever it is. And what did they contribute to it as well? And if we can do that, I think that a lot of these walls will come down and we can start to look at things in a much more inclusive and collaborative way than an us versus them or, you know, good and evil or, you know, whatever, whatever it is that things can be polarized to. So I think that's the biggest takeaway because mm -hmm. that to me leads to the, the being heard, understood, seen, and, and accepted. Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm very much a least common denominator person. I am not a math person, but what I did take, the gem I took away from, from many years of math is least common denominator. And what that means to me is what can we boil things down to? What does it really mean? How a least common denominator is something that we can't break down in any further that is fundamental to me how do we think about things in terms of how they can't be broken down any further and then what do we do with that information that we have sitting in front of us and as a society if we do that i think we're going to be in a much better direction agreed and i love i love that what you said applies so much more broadly <laughs> than digital <laughs> particularly given the current climate in many parts of the world mm -hmm. our respective countries included <laughs> absolutely <laughs> oh jessica it's been fantastic and i really look forward to um talking with you again same absolutely thank you so much for the opportunity and for your time and we will get on figuring out when we can do the next one perfect looking forward to it okay. thank Thanks. you 
Thanks for listening. To find out more about our products and how to get involved in this podcast, please visit playwellforlife.com.